I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do, and why it matters. In the House and In the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Well, welcome to season two of In the House and In the Senate. Thank you so much for joining me again. I was so heartened by the response to the first season. While I was conceptualising the podcast, I hope that just if one person got something out of the conversations, that would be enough for me. But I've received so many fantastic messages and I'm particularly pleased that the first season reinvigorated some listeners' passions for making change through politics or inspired others to consider politics as a path moving forward. To kick off season two, I thought I'd start with a hotly requested episode, and that's a solo episode running through my own story and my own involvement in politics. So let's wind back the clock to 2012. I've been involved either directly or adjacent to politics or political offices for coming up to 10 years, which really seems crazy to me. I really don't know where the ages of like 22 to 28 have gone. There may have been a couple of TV shows in between, but all in all, It really feels like a couple of days have passed and now it's like, boom, you're 28. I'll start in the same place that I start most of my episodes and that's asking what our guest's day has looked like. Personally, at the moment, I'm straddling a couple of roles. 
In my nine to five, I work as a communications consultant where I help organizations with their communications. And that can be internal or external, their stakeholder relations. So basically what that means is ensuring they are engaged with the right and relevant people or organizations that they need to be talking to. And another major part of our work is helping organizations navigate government and government process. So let's say a company wants a piece of legislative change. Maybe a mental health not-for-profit wants the government to be spending more money on mental health services. My role and my nine-to-five is to work with that organisation to strategize the best way to approach that advocacy ask and to help them connect and engage with government. It's very fast-paced, it's very diverse work, and I jump between a lot of clients. They've got lots of different issues, and it definitely challenges me from a policy perspective because basically you need to be on top of everything that's happening in politics, the media, and then in whatever sectors that you're currently focused on. So that's one job. On the other side, as many listeners would be aware, I do do a bit of content creation on social media, which, let's be honest, content creation is just a euphemism for being an influencer. But, like, that word seems to have so much toxicity associated with it. And I I do think that that's a bit of a shame. Like, I, I get it, but it's a shame. Uh, honestly, I could do a full separate episode on that. But I digress. I I really can't understate how much I enjoy doing the influencer stuff. And I think a big part of why I enjoy the influencer stuff so much is because I really run my own show when it comes to influencing. Like you would, if if you're like big on Instagram, you would notice that you'd pick up that a lot of influencers have like something in their bio being like at the influencer, whatever, whoever their management is. Um, But I do all my own negotiations with brands from that very first. They'll send me an email being like, hey, do you want to work with XYZ? I'll consider their brief. I'll pitch them. Then there's usually a process of me having to actually go back and pitch them creative ideas, which then will like land on, okay, cool, we're happy to work together. Then you create the content and then you invoice and all that jazz. And I guess it's been really an amazing having like worked in politics for so long, which at some points, like I I think politics is very vibrant and there's like lots going on. It's all a bit spicy, but it can be dry, I guess. And so for me, the influencing has been a really amazing creative outlet for which I'm very grateful for. And Plus, it doesn't hurt to get a little extra jingle in my pocket. Um, I've shared this on my stories before um, because I'm like I'm concentrating on doing what a lot of millennials are doing. And me and Glenn, um, sorry, I can't say that. Like me and Glenn, every time I podcast on Cocktails and Roses, I always get a flood of DMs correcting my grammar and saying that I should be saying Glenn and I. Glenn and I are frantically saving for a house deposit. Honestly, with housing affordability where it's at, which is awful, it's just like I feel like I don't know what it's been like for you, but it's just been a ch- it's just a challenge for me now. I've just set myself a little challenge and who knows if we'll get there, but 
I am just slogging away. And to round out the, sorry, going back to the question of what fills my day, uh, I also now host two podcasts, Cocktails and Roses, as mentioned, which is my Bachelor Recap podcast with Osha Ginsberg, and In the House and In the Senate. And I'm so happy that we're back for a second season. But back to politics. Why did and do I see politics as the place I want to make change? And what were the underlying motivators for me to firstly get involved? I guess I track this back to my childhood in two ways. Firstly, while I most definitely do not come from a political family, my mum was always highly engaged with politics. My first rally as such, was the Bridge Walk for Reconciliation in 2000. God, some of my listeners were probably not even born back in 2000. But uh, in 2000, about 250,000 people walked across Sydney Harbour Bridge to show their support for meaningful reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Mum definitely instilled the importance of community and fighting for fairness and equality in me. And in a practical sense, getting up, heading into the city with like a seven-year-old to walk across the bridge amongst thousands, like my mum's a single mum and it's logistically not the easiest task. So I always recognise the importance of her prioritising events like that. And my mum was very open with me. She always treated me like an adult as we watched the news together. She'd never shy away from trying to deconstruct complex concepts to me. I remember sitting in a Baskins and Robbins ice cream shop as like a tiny little girl and having mum explain to me what the goods and services tax, the GST was. And, you know, if you're particularly if you have a single mum as well, you'll you'll understand this dynamic where you guys, you just become best friends. And so she just I guess I was just her friend and she would just talk to me about whatever was happening politically. And the GST at the time was plastered on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. In fact, sometimes I think it's an absolute mystery that I ended up joining the Labor Party because each night before my mum used to go to sleep, and this was when I was really little and still sleeping next to my mum like half the time, she used to listen to a shock jock called Stan Zamanik every single night. And Stan was sort of in the Ray Hadley, Alan Jones school of radio presenters, meaning, you know, they're quite conservative. Their listeners are mostly retirees and my mum, clearly. (laughs) And one of the main things that stuck with me was that Stan Zamanik, like he just didn't believe in stress. He once told a 65-year-old man who called up to say he'd lost his job because of stress, he called him a lazy wuss and said that there's no such thing as stress. Uh, And it should be noted that the caller responded by calling Stan a fucking idiot. (laughs) But that's what mum listened to every night while we fell asleep. And amongst the denial of, you know, legitimate medical concepts like stress – There was obviously news, politics, current affairs. It was like your classic talk back. So 
I really, I did have that experience. I did have that exposure. It's just a wonder how I didn't turn out as a conservative by osmosis. So it was really that period of time, my early childhood, that I think really impacted how I view the world and what has made me so eager to try and make change in whatever little patch I'm working in. While we were growing up, it was just me and my mum. As I mentioned earlier, she was a single mum. She was studying social work and Indigenous studies at Macquarie University and working as a beauty therapist at the same time while I was like, you know, under the age of five. But this balance became unfeasible as I edged closer to kindy and through basically my entire childhood, we lived paycheck to paycheck, relying on the social safety net of Centrelink and drawing upon the support of charities. Through one period of my childhood, we stayed in the Salvation Army's Women's Refuge in the Sydney CBD because the social housing wait list was just that long and we were living below the poverty line. And honestly, it's it's upsetting to say that accessible, affordable housing and homelessness are still such major issues in Australia today. You know, Every night in Australia, more than 100,000 people are experiencing homelessness. And although our most visible experience of homelessness is, you know, seeing people sleeping rough on the street, that type of homelessness only represents 7% of the homeless population. The majority of those experiencing homelessness are utilising servos like the Salvos Women's Refuge. They're couch surfing. They're sleeping in cars or crowded boarding houses. So I think it was here that I really started to identify how polarised wealth is in our society. I really started to identify that there are, there really are haves and have-nots, and that the underlying reasons for disadvantage are complex, and once you're in the cycle of poverty, it's really hard to break free. So that's one part of my lived experience. There's also this fantastic quote from Penny Wong that says, you can choose not to be interested in politics, but you can't choose to be unaffected by it. And I remember distinctively feeling that as a child. I felt like I could feel the impact of legislation changes as a child, obviously not in a super tangible way, like in a day-to-day sense, but I remember... I remember, let's say, the impact on my mum and how she was feeling when in in, 20, in 2006, the Howard government introduced this particular piece of legislation which changed the eligibility for single-parent payments. So basically, you used to be able to claim the parenting payment until your youngest child turned 16 but Howard changed it so it was until until you changed it down to eight which meant that when your youngest child turned eight single parents who were predominantly women were moved to the lower new start payment and that really impacted me and mum as we moved through the world so these experiences defined how i felt about the world around me and you know i continued to collect these experiences as i grew and moved through the world some of you might remember in the Sally McManus interview that at my first job which was at this like french bakery in sydney cbd i was getting paid 7.85 an hour 
And that was like three or four dollars below the award rate, which my friends and I later discovered. And we wrote some cracking letters, like probably so funny looking back at them. These cracking letters, like referencing the award, and we're like getting using all this legal language. We were all in like year 10 legal studies. <laughs> um, so we became our own advocates and we won. And I got like a grand and a half. I think I mentioned it to Sally and I was like, hell yeah, I'm a bloody activist. So <laughs> basically, I grew into a person who is, I'm very sensitive to people being taken advantage of. And I believe everyone should have equal opportunity. I believe in social mobility. And I fundamentally believe that governments or I believe it's our government's responsibility to make changes in positive ways that help protect people, ensure fairness and look after those in our society who are most vulnerable. It just, it makes sense to me. But moving on to, I guess, what naturally is the next question that I ask my guests, which is how did I, how did I get involved? I, I've sort of covered off the passions portion. My formal involvement in politics began at university. I left high school and embarked on a Bachelor of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney, and I loved it. One of the major things I loved about uni is that I loved that once you were at uni, it was cool to be passionate about stuff. I felt like when I was in high school, there was this idea that if you were too invested in something, too passionate, it was just too much. You were doing too much. And I remember people would like put up posters to join the environment club at lunchtime. And there was very much an air of like, that's super lame. Why would you waste your lunch on that? Like rather go eat a potato pie or whatever we used to do in high school that was better than environment club. Um, But when you got to uni, it was cool. In fact, you were cooler if you were into something, whether that was debating Quidditch or yeah, we had a Quidditch society at University of Sydney. It was interesting, but like looked really fun. Or like the medieval society where people would like fully kit up and belt each other with sticks. I just loved at uni, passion was cool. And when I got to orientation week where they have all the clubs and societies out there on the uni lawn, I felt like it was the adult thing to do to figure out where you sat on the political spectrum. Like I'm such a nerd. How is that what what, what I thought was the adult thing to do? But over the course of my probably my first year of uni, amongst many drinks at Herman's and Manning, which were the names of our two uni bars, I considered how I felt about the world what my values were, reflected on some of the stuff like that I outlined earlier, and I learnt more about the specific policy positions of the different parties, and then I started to get more involved. So I got involved on a student election campaign for the Student Representative Council. I would have been, this would have been like three quarters of the way through my first year at uni, um, and Clearly, the coolest people on campus are getting involved in student elections. Uh, It's basically a more serious version of your school student representative council, your SRC, and a more chaotic, though not much more chaotic, version of parliament in Canberra. My first campaign was called Legalise It. And from the name, you can sort of gather what our policy priority was. 
I think I was ahead of the times. Like I'm I'm in Perth and in the last Western Australian state election, two people were elected from the legalized cannabis party. So, you know, me and my mates at uni, we were just a few years, we were really like leading the charge. But from that election, I really got hooked on politics. And I really got hooked on the competitive element. And by this stage, I knew I was left-leaning and I was between the Greens and the Labor Party, but I guess my pragmatic side won out and I ended up joining the Labor Party. And the deal was the deal was actually clinched because someone in the Labor Heart the Labor Club offered me a free hoodie. And, you know, back in uni, like, you're not one to turn down a freebie, let alone, like, a full hoodie. It was emblazoned with ALP, which, you know, probably could have taken or even it. But it really, it got me over the line. So during this time, I got more deeply involved in student unionism. And I was, like, I was amazed. I was enamoured by these people who were, like, we would go drinking with the, you know, labour club. But they, they, and they were all like, everyone was very, ner- everyone was really nice, but everyone was like quite nerdy as well. And would there would always be this like underlying political contest, which I found really interesting. So I joined not only the Labor Club, but I also basically joined half the clubs on campus. I was like racking up the leader- leadership positions. I was like the secretary of the Media and Communication Society. I was the president of the History Society. It was all happening. And naturally, I was encouraged to, from like a mate of mine, to run for a position on the student union myself. And my campaign was called Unleash Alicia. We wore, <laughs> we wore bright orange shirts with a big scratch mark on the front. You know, Tiger Unleash was good branding exercise. And I would rock up on campus each morning at like 6am drive down what we called Eastern Avenue, blaring Nova 969, trying to intimidate the other campaigns. And I'd load out these like colourful A-frames, not dissimilar to what you would see during an actual election, except the way they were like from Bunnings and we'd literally like pick a paint colour and rollers. And I, I, me and mum were living in a unit at the time and there was like sort of a communal parking space. And, you know, I laid out tarps, but we got so many complaints because there's just like orange paint all over this car park floor. Um, so we were very, we were very committed. We were, we would literally campaign to students from the early morning to the late evening. It was pretty nuts. But I, ca- I, I came second. I was elected, and I joined the student board of directors, of which was called the University of Sydney Union. It was a $22 million organisation. It ran the bars on campus, all the clubs and societies, and a bunch of the food outlets. And we were 11 students in charge of all the decisions being made by this organisation. I actually ended up becoming president of that student board and, you know, enmeshed myself even deeper into the world of student politics. Student politics as a whole was an amazing experience. I was really involved in the National Union of Students as well, which was less focused on service provision and it was more bullshit. 
we fought against the federal government uh, and called for them to end at that at that point in time when I was involved. We were calling for them to end their plans to deregulate university fees and. Adjacent to the National Union of Students, I was really involved in organising spaces like Reclaim the Night, which some of you might have heard of. It's an annual protest march to end gendered violence. And I co-convened the organising group for the 2014 Reclaim the Night. And, you know, we, you know those moments where you're like reflecting through your life? I reflect on that as something I am most proud of. There were other elements of student politics I was less proud of. I was hyper-competitive during student elections and it sort of really brought out a not-good side of me. Um, And I was so enamoured by the Labor Party and I felt like the Labor Party could do absolutely no wrong that I had the tendency to defend what perhaps didn't deserve defending and I hadn't really developed a nuanced nuanced approach to politics. It was all new, overwhelming and exciting and I was really in the grips of it but it was such an important learning experience and I think I really stepped into maturity after graduating. Through uni, I got my first taste of political staffing, my actual first ever political role. And I think I might have misrepresented this in the first series by saying it was Sophie, but it was actually in the electorate office of a member called John Murphy. He was lovely. I worked for him through the 2013 federal election. Then I went to work for Sophie Kotsis at New South Wales Parliament. And I was honestly so lame. Every time I would walk into New South Wales Parliament, I would open Spotify and I would play the theme of House of Cards. That is truly embarrassing, kind of cute, but the work was really rewarding. Sophie was the shadow minister for a range of portfolios through my time working for her. They included ageing, multiculturalism, local government, women. She had lots on her plate and through my time with her, I had awesome experiences for someone particularly like in their early 20s, sort of first real like adult job. I worked on a submission to the Willing to Work inquiry, which was looking at employment discrimination against older Australians and Australians with disability, which is something that I remain really passionate about to this day. We worked on addressing elder abuse and we opposed the sale of the Cirrus building in Circular Quay in Sydney. And Sydney siders might recognise it as that building that when you're driving over the Harbour Bridge and you see that one-way Jesus sign in the in the building's window. I pass that sign on my way to school each day for like six years and it's an incredibly iconic building building, and it really deserved to be protected. Um, so that was a very important experience for me in sort of political activism and pulling the lead, levers that you are afforded in politics. But it was actually the networks that I built through uni that helped me score what I still consider to be my big break and my most rewarding role in politics. And that was working for Bill Shorten, the then federal opposition leader. I think a lot of people tend to frame networking in this really like corporate cringe way, like you're standing around industry events talking about really dry stuff about your job. But true networking is the natural organic connections that you make along the way, those personal connections, not weird transactional relationships. And it was thanks to the relationships that I made at the National Union of Students, um, they had like 
they had a yearly political conference where student politicians from around the country would come to debate policy and they would drink a lot and they were very, very cool student politicians. And on that, just a student politics tidbit, one of my favourite memories was at these conferences, each political party or faction would have their very own alcoholic punch random and I was the faction that I was a part of was called student unity it's like the student wing of labor right and you know maybe I can I might pop up a question box on Instagram and get some questions and maybe we can delve a little bit deeper into factions later in this season Um, but I was part of student unity ours our punch was called unity punch it's a secret recipe and I was never seller master which was the position that was like the keeper of this secret recipe but myth has it that it has like crushed nodos and likely whatever passion pop flavors were available which cannot be healthy but student politics was a different time no wonder Canberra is the way that it is (laughs) through those experiences I created the connections that would lead me to working in federal parliament it was all over the the alcoholic punch I guess (laughs) my job was as a my big break My job was a media advancer on the 2016 federal election. In 2016, the Labor Party was seven seats away from forming majority government. I was on Bill Shorten's advance team, a group of predominantly young women who organised media visits, worked with stakeholders and who were basically tasked with keeping their boss away from signs that would make them look dumb in the paper the next day. So the classic example, I was I spoke to Abby Chatfield on her podcast and the example of like an advancer doing a bad job was uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. He was standing in front of a reject shop when he was doing what in politics, we call a street walk, which is the like political expression for you know well walking down the street. Um, but that landed in the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was masterly cropped to just read the reject. So basically, my job was to make that not happen and organize all the logistics around his media events. It was an awesome role. I basically lived out of a suitcase for two years. I would be home to Canberra. I'd moved there and I was thankfully paying very, very little rent. I'm like talking 130 bucks a week. And I'd be home for maybe a week at a time and back on the road for three It's actually crazy looking back on it. We would hop all around the country, which, I mean, you know, in our current context, it is really crazy looking back on it. I'd be taking an average of three or four flights a week. I'd land in a place, let's say Gladstone in North Queensland. We were doing a lot of campaigning in North Queensland at the time. And I would go to whatever site we were visiting, whether that be a school or a mine site or a hospital. And then I'd meet the stakeholder I'd go through the plans for the visit with them and then I would write up a report for my office and then when Bill would arrive on the ground, I basically wrangle the media pack and help guide him through the visit while, you know, me, myself, remaining as discreet as possible. I was, I felt very proud to work for Bill and I remain so impressed to this day by his, you know, he's, he's a really authentic person particularly person to person and he really genuinely cared for the people that we would meet on the road. 
I remember advancing him at the final hearing of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which was understandably harrowing as these survivors were seeking some semblance of justice. And Bill knew so many of the survivors in the room personally and he comforted them with such empathy. And I just was like, I remember being like, I need to remember this moment for the rest of my life. I also felt, I also feel really proud to have been working in federal parliament through the pa- pass, the passage of marriage equality. And, you know, it's, it's one of those moments where you yourself feel pretty insignificant, but you, you're like, you, you're aware that you're in the presence of unbelievable activists. I remember the afternoon that the legislation passed, I sat in this corner enclave of parliament house with a bunch of other staffers watching the vote in the chamber on a little TV and I just remember everyone in tears that it had finally happened. I remember toasting champagne in Mural Hall, which is this gorgeous, amazing hall in Parliament House after the vote and just in my peripheral vision is Penny Wong and Magda Zabansky and you're just like, Wow, I am really in the presence of such powerful people and this is really history happening around me. So I think we've come full circle in the sense that I spoke at the top of this episode about the power of parliament to make change in people's lives, that I felt legislative changes in my life as a young person and what bigger change in the lives of so many than to legitimise their love and relationships that obviously didn't need legitimacy at all, but given we organise our society through laws and legislation, it is important for people to be recognised and for, for, our, for the people in power to be passing legislation that uplifts and helps people live happy, safe, beautiful lives. I might wrap up this episode with the final question I tend to ask guests, and that is, what is my advice to people considering getting involved in politics? And I want to keep this practical because there's a lot of answers available and we've heard a lot of our guests share lovely sentiments about being confident or abandoning imposter syndrome. But honestly, those are the things that I still struggle with. And we don't want, you know, the need to be confident or for you to feel like you need to know a bunch about specific policy areas to to stop us from actually taking a step and getting involved. So my advice would be to put yourself out there, regardless of fear. Identify a practical step you can take to get closer to your goal, because the rest I think, sort of sorts itself out, takes care of itself in the sense that I do think that by making conscious decisions for ourselves, there's a flow on effect. And it's hard and it's scary. And I still get scared each week putting myself out there. I went to this like, (laughs) I went to this new spin class last week. I've spoken about it on Instagram. And they have these like professional bikes and you have to clip yourself in and And it's really fun. It's like clubbing music. 
and I didn't know anyone there. I felt really nervous and really shy, but I put myself out there and I made the decision and I was brave. I know it seems like a silly analogy, but I like to think that it's relevant. Identify the thing first. Are you going to join a political party and start getting involved that way? Are you going to go to your local branch meeting of whatever political party you decide to join? Um, which if you join, <laughs> branch meetings are not the most exciting place, but political parties and branches, particularly people out in their local branches, are just so keen for young people. So do get involved and I think that you will be really embraced. Go to other political party stuff. So political parties have, you know, women's events, all these different like sub-policy events. Um, the, the warning being that at the moment I feel like there's not many young people involved, which sucks, but you can be the change. And as I said, older party members get very excited about young people wanting to get involved. Looking at Australia's political landscape, if your end goal is to be pre-selected and elected to parliament, joining a political party is probably the most practical thing to do. And I get it. Some listeners might be like, no, like the two-party system. And I get it. It's like a completely understandable response. That's an entirely different conversation and one that we can have. But this is a practical advice section. So, you know, there is that point of joining a political party getting involved, being engaged, going to the events, and then one day going down the pre-selection path. And I hope this season to really delve in with one of hopefully a parliamentarian who has been pre-selected about how to get pre-selected because uh, what I love, I love this podcast because, you know, it's just two women talking about politics and policy, which, you know, I don't think that we see that much of in the media landscape. Um, but I would really like to just we, – we talk very high level and about policy and, you know, as I as I mentioned before, being confident and all of that jazz. But I do really just want to get into the nuts and bolts of how do you actually get pre-selected. Moving on, like maybe the thing that you identify – maybe you don't – you're not into the political party thing, but you are passionate about a particular issue – and you want to do your advocacy and activism in that way. You can join community groups, search Google, Facebook, and just email. Just ask. Say, I want to come to your meeting. Maybe you're passionate about climate change. Email the Climate Council. See what you can participate in. It's going to be frustrating sometimes because you'll put yourself out there and you'll be like offering yourself up as a passionate person. And some organizations weirdly will be surprised that someone wants to be involved and they might not have like a specific group or whatever. But just keep searching until you find yourself in a space with like-minded people and you're organising towards a goal. If you're having trouble identifying the thing, DM me, email me. My contact is in the show notes and join me through this next season of In the House and in the Senate. I've got an incredible range of guests lined up and maybe those conversations will spark a thought for you that might grow into a trajectory and a plan and a goal. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I mentioned at the top of this episode that the second season of In the House and In the Senate is being made possible by my friends at Plan International Australia. And next week, I will have an episode with the Plan International Australia CEO. I'm greatly appreciative of their support, and I can't wait for you to hear the episodes in season two. Until next week, see ya. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing, and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye to Luke. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> See ya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.